Oh, hey there, Bruiser Nation. Raise those anchors and get ready to take a ride on the Bruise Cruise. This week, our macabro excursion takes us to the 1970s in Yorkshire, England. It's not a great story. Peter Sutcliffe terrorized the communities of Manchester and West Yorkshire, murdering 13, yes, 13 women and attempting to take the life of seven others. After a five-year-long murder spree, many attacks, and a botched police investigation along the way, This man was finally brought to justice. But before we take this macabro excursion, remember to like, rate, subscribe to the Bruce Cruise Podcast. However you listen to the Bruce Cruise Podcast, check out our new merch store, BruiserNation slash productions.myshopify.com. We have newly designed merch and more merch coming each and every week partnering with Shopify now. And fun fact, fun fact, because I do pay to be a member of Shopify, I get to like keep the profits other than shipping. So you're not, I'm giving money to Shopify. You're not giving money to Shopify. You're helping the Bruiser Nation grow. If you go to bruisernationproductions.myshopify.com, it's a lot to remember. I'll post a link in the description of this episode. Our Patreon is now live. I'll put a link to that as well in the description. You know, we're we're still adding some rewards as we go. Right now, it's just like stickers and bags and and mugs and shirts and such. But we'll we'll get to a point where we'll start doing early access to videos and podcasts and special Q and A's just for our Patreons. Uh, we're going to start doing some Twitch live streams as well. Uh, probably I'm looking at the first one, probably be February 5th. I believe that's a Sunday night or no, February 6th, February 6th. I am helping production on a wrestling show on the 5th. That's why that name, that date popped into my head. So on the 6th of February, we'll do our first, Bruce Cruise podcast live stream. Just kind of hang out, join in the fun. I'll throw the our Twitch up in the description as well so you can follow and subscribe to our Twitch channel. I do do some Halo streams on there, but I'm not nearly as entertaining when I'm playing Halo as I am when I'm doing a podcast cuz I'm super focused on like trying to win when I play Halo. But be sure, sure, once again, like, rate, subscribe, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Check out our website, BruiserNationProductions.com. Links to our merch are on there, too, as well as some articles from some of our staff members, mostly me, but it's fine. They're pretty old. I think I'm going to write a new one regarding the Miami Dolphins this week, so keep look forward to that. But before we get into the heavy subject matter of this latest macabro true crime episode, 
we got some good news. I mean, I guess good news. I mean, it's coming out of China. I know we don't really agree with their policies. But we can all at least admit technologically they help out. China's artificial sun set a new world record after superheating a loop of plasma to temperatures five times hotter than the sun for more than 17 minutes. Now, I don't know how they pulled that off. One, at all. First and foremost, I am not a scientist. Secondly, like, how do you not like destroy everything with something that's five times hotter than the sun for 17 minutes? But apparently, the East, as in the Experimental Advanced Superconducting Tokamak Nuclear Fusion Reactor, maintained a temperature of 158 million degrees Fahrenheit. Dear God, 70 million degrees Celsius, if, if you don't use the metric system, for 1,056 seconds. The achievement brings scientists a small yet significant step closer to the creation of a source of near-unlimited clean energy. Apparently, they smashed a previous record held by France's Torah Supra Takamak in 2003, where plasma in a coiling loop remained at similar temperatures for 390 seconds. There's another record that East holds. Uh, May 2021, they ran 101 seconds at 216 million degrees Fahrenheit. The core of the actual sun, by contrast, reaches temperatures of around 27 million. So we're creating energy that's hotter than the sun to hopefully create unlimited clean energy. I mean, fingers crossed this works because that'd be legit. I'd have to pay an electric bill and stuff. But the real question is, with something like that, are the powers that be ever really going to let something like that catch on because they're all worried about their damn pocketbooks. But that's a, that's a story for another podcast. I think where we'll dive into the greed and corruption that helped make this country what it is. And as great as this country can be, um, it really shits on the little guy and just helps the bigger guys get bigger and richer for absolutely no reason. But we'll talk about that on another podcast. We're going to do a quick pod deck segment before we really get into the meat of this story from the 1970s in West Yorkshire, England. You. Yeah, you. Are you a podcaster? Finding it hard to come up with new and interesting ideas, topics, or questions for your guest on your podcast? Look no further than Poddex. No matter the podcast or the guest, Poddex has a deck for you. Need gaming questions? Purchase up, down, left, right. Love superheroes? Well, Poddex has a deck for you. Whether it's sports, true crime, relationships, or everything in between, find fun, outlandish topics on pod decks they make it easy with their app to keep all your decks right at your fingertips download the pod decks app today and bring a whole new energy to your podcast and no they don't pay me to say that but i really do like using these things so today's pod deck question is going to be What is one 
interesting fact about my ancestors. Well, McCarthy is an Irish last name. So I will tell you a story that I learned researching my last name that is pretty cool. So the one interesting fact about my ancestors, I hope you like the the Celtic music there, throwing it back to my Irish heritage, that McCarthy was McCarthy, like an A-I-G-H, and you know Blarney Castle? How you kiss the Blarney Stone, apparently, and you get the gift of gab? Well, apparently, way, way back when, thousands of years ago, my ancestors... The McCarthy clan built Blarney Castle. So that's why I really can never shut up. Fair enough. Visit BruiserNationProductions.com for all our awesome content and links to our merch partners. If you can't tell, I truly enjoy my Roadcaster Pro. Still trying to perfect the timing with my splats and the amount of banks that I have and the sounds and everything else. But I truly, truly enjoy this Roadcaster Pro. Now back to the episode details at hand. Peter Sutcliffe, Yorkshire Ripper. We'll start with his his early life. He was born to working class family in Bingley, West Riding of Yorkshire. I guess does that mean it's west of Yorkshire? Do they still still use riding terms? Anyway, his parents were John William Sutcliffe and his wife Kathleen Francis, a native of Connemara. Kathleen was Catholic, and John was a member of the choir at the local Anglican 
Church of St. Wilfrid's, but the children were raised in the Catholic faith. Reportedly a loner, Sutcliffe left school aged 15 and had a series of menial jobs, including two stints as a gravedigger in the 1960s. Between November 1971 and April 1973, he worked at the Baird Television Factory on a packaging line. He left this position when he was asked to go on the road as a salesman. After leaving Baird Television, Sutcliffe worked night shifts at the Britannia Works of Anderton International from April 1973. In February 1975, he took redundancy and used half of the 400 euros payoff to train as a heavy goods vehicle driver, semi-truck driver. On March 5th, 1976, he was dismissed for the theft of used tires. He was unemployed, unemployed until October 1976 when he found a job as an HGV driver for TNWH Clark Holdings LTD on the Canal Road Industrial Estate in Bradford. Sutcliffe, by some reports, hired prostitutes as a young man. That's going to be very important to our discussion today. Like I alluded to in the intro probably six minutes ago, that... The, the shoddy police work that was involved, part of it was they were they were so convinced that he was just attacking prostitutes that any attack that he did on what they deemed innocent women was, oh, it's someone else, or, or you're totally confused, that's not what happened. So they really didn't take into account anything other than their own biases and we'll get into that a little bit if you really want to learn a lot more about this check out the uh the netflix documentary the ripper i think that's what it was called i watched it last night it was it's pretty good i mean they tried to put names to the faces of his victims talk to some of the assault victims that survived his attacks and it's it's pretty pretty it's heavy stuff it's heavy stuff back to him hiring prostitutes as a young man it had been speculated he had a bad experience during which he was conned out of money by a prostitute and her pimp but other analyses of his actions have not found evidence that he actually sought the services of prostitutes, but note that he nonetheless developed an, obs an obsession with them, including watching them soliciting on the streets of Leeds and Bradford. I'm going to say, because as we learn, he didn't just attack prostitutes. That was not his goal. He was just a complete monster who looked like just any other dude, which is always scary. And it had nothing to do with prostitutes. It, it may, may be easier targets, but not, oh my God, I'm going to go out and murder prostitutes. That's not, not that was not the thing. And, that, and that's why it took five years for them to catch him after he started murdering women. Sutcliffe met Sonia Surma on the 14th of February, 1967. They married on the 10th of August, 1974. Sonia suffered several miscarriages and that they were informed she would not be able to have children. She resumed a teacher training course during which time she had an affair with an ice cream van driver. In 
Sonia completed the course in 1977 and began teaching. She and, Cut, she and Sutcliffe, wow, used her salary to buy a house at Six Garden Lane in Heaton in Bradford, into which they moved in on the 26th of September, 1977. They were still living there when he was finally arrested. Through his childhood and his early adolescence, Sutcliffe showed no signs of abnormality. One of his brothers admitted their father was an abusive alcoholic, stating that their father once smashed a beer glass over Peter's head for sitting in his chair at the Christmas table. That shit crazy. After arguing when the brother was four or five years old, their father used to whip them with a belt. Later, in part related to his occupation as a grave digger, he developed a macabre sense of humor. In his late adolescence, Sutcliffe developed a growing obsession with voyeurism and spent much time spying on prostitutes and the men seeking their services. So this guy was messed up from early on. Now, you know, abusive, alcoholic father, that doesn't help. Um, his interest as he got into sexual maturity definitely didn't help. Um, but this dude was was off the chain and, and something else completely. Um, we'll get into some of those details as far as him saying God was telling him to do this. If it's in my notes, I don't remember if I put it in there. But we'll get to that in a little bit of time. As far as... His attacks and murders go. Total of 23 attacks and or murders have been attributed to this psychopath. In Leeds, there were six murders and four attacks. Bradford, three murders and two attacks. Manchester, two murders, no attacks. Huddersfield, one murder, one attack. Halifax, one murder, one attack. Kylie, one attack, no murders. And Silsden, one attack, no murders. 13 murders, 10 attacks, 23 in total. And this dude was just all over the place. And, and we're going to go over his timeline a little bit, but there's really not a lot of time in between these murders and these attacks, to be completely honest, except maybe the first one. In September 1969, Suck Sutcliffe attacks anonymous woman with a stone-filled sock to the head. She survives the attack and no charges are pressed. Now, here was everything that happened here. His first documented occult, Occult assault was of a female prostitute who he had met while searching for another woman who had tricked him out of money. He left his friend Trevor Birdsall's minivan and walked up St. Paul's Road in Bradford until he was out of sight. When Sutcliffe returned, he was out of breath, as if he had been running. He told Birdsall to drive off quick, quickly. Sutcliffe said he had followed a prostitute into a garage and hit her over the head with a stone and a sock. According to his statement, I got out of the car, went across the road, and hit her. The force of the impact tore the toe off the sock, and whatever was in it came out. I went back to the car and got in it. The very next day, they visited Sutcliffe's home as the woman he had attacked had noted Birdsall's vehicle registration plate. 
Not only did Sutcliffe admit to hitting her, but claimed it was with his hand. The police told him he was very lucky as the woman did not want anything more to do with the incident. She was a known prostitute and her husband was serving a jail term for assault. So first assault, they basically do absolutely nothing because she didn't want to press charges because she's a prostitute and she thought it would bring more problems than they would solve. They should have charged him any way. Like he admitted to doing it. Pretty sure that, uh, that, that that's a problem. And whether she wanted to press charges or not, the police could have and should have pressed charges. July 5th, 1975, Sutcliffe attacks 36-year-old Anna Rogolsky with a J at the end. That's confusing. By striking her with a hammer and slashing her across the abdomen. She survives. And that was in Keeley. She... Anna Rogluski was walking alone, striking her, and she was striked unconscious with a ball-peen hammer and slashed her abdomen with a knife. Disturbed by a neighbor, he left without killing her. Rogulski survived after neurological surgery, surgery, Jesus, surgery, but she was psychologically traumatized by the attack. She said later, I've been afraid to go out much because I feel feel people are staring and pointing at me. The whole thing is making my life a misery. I sometimes wish I had died in the attack. On the night of August 15th, Sutcliffe attacked Olive Smelt in Halifax, employing the same modus operandi he briefly engaged Smelt with. With a commonplace pleasantry about the weather before striking hammer blows to her skull from behind, he then disarranged her clothing and slashed her lower back with a knife. Again, he was interrupted and left his victim badly injured but alive. Like Rogolsky, Smelt sub- subsequently suffered severe emotional and mental trauma. He had told interviewing officer department superintendent Dick Holland, later he would be the Ripper Squad second-in-command, that was what they named themselves to try to catch this sick son of a bitch, that her attacker had a Yorkshire accent. But this information was ignored, as was the fact that neither she nor Rogolsky were in towns with a red light area. On the 27th of August, Sutcliffe attacked 14-year-old Tracy Brown. This is all in 1975. In Silston, he struck her from behind and hit her on the head five times, five times, while she was walking along a country lane. He ran off when he saw the lights of a passing car, leaving his victim requiring brain surgery. Sutcliffe was not convicted of the attack, but confessed to it in 1992. That's just great. And again, 1875. The first victim to be killed by Sutcliffe was Wilma McCann. On the 30th of October, McCann from Scott Hall in Leeds was a mother of four children between the ages of two and seven. Sutcliffe struck the back of her skull twice with a hammer then inflicted a stab wound to the throat. Two stab wounds below the right breast, three stab wounds below the left breast, and a series of nine stab wounds around the umbilicus. The umbilicus. 
let's find out. Gotta look. Oh, the umbil- uh, the na- the belly button. Why didn't you just say that? That's weird. An extensive inquiry involving one, involving 150 officers of the West Yorkshire Police and 11,000 interviews failed to find the culprit. In December 2007, McCann's eldest daughter, Sonia Newlands, killed herself. Reportedly, after suffering years of anguish and depression over the circumstances of her mother's death and consequences to her and her siblings. I mean, I can only imagine how bad all that could have been. She was labeled basically a prostitute. And if you watch that Netflix special, um, they paint a very different picture. When it starts, they they mention it. By the the time it ends, it doesn't seem like she was really engaging in prostitution all that much. She may have had to do what she had to do to put food on her table for her family, but damn, like all this shit could have been avoided if they'd have just done their job when he attacked the first prostitute back in 1969. 1976, Sutcliffe committed his next murder in Leeds on January 20th. He stabbed 42-year-old Emily Jackson 52 times. In dire financial straits, Jackson had been persuaded by her husband to engage in prostitution using the van of their family roofing business. Well, isn't that some shit? Yeah, of course. Of course. Push your woman, your wife, into doing something that isn't ideal and is dangerous and what the fuck. Sutcliffe picked up Jackson, who was soliciting outside the Gady pub on Round Hay Road, then drove about half a mile to some derelict buildings on Enfield Terrace in the Manor Industrial Estate. Sutcliffe hit her on the head with a hammer, dragged her body into a rubbish-strewn yard, then used a sharpened screwdriver to stab her in the neck, chest, and abdomen. He stomped on her thigh, leaving behind an impression of his boot. This dude was fucking something else. Sutcliffe attacked 20-year-old Marcella Claxton in Roundhay Park, Leeds on the 9th of May. Walking home from a party, she expected she accepted an offer of a lift from Sutcliffe. When she got out of the car to urinate, he hit her from behind with a hammer. Claxton survived and testified against Sutcliffe at his trial. At the time of the, this attack, Claxton had been four months pregnant and she subsequently miscarried her baby. She required multiple extensive brain operations and suffered from intermittent blackouts and chronic depression. So this woman was attacked very similarly to all of these other ones. And yet they still couldn't put it together on February 5th in 1977. Sutcliffe attacked Irene Richardson, a Chapel Town prostitute, in Rodney Park. Richardson was bludgeoned to death with a hammer. Once she was dead, Sutcliffe mutilated her corpse with a knife. Tire tracks left clear to the murder scene resulted in a long list of possible suspect vehicles. Two months later, on April 23rd, Sutcliffe killed Patricia or Tina Atkinson, a prostitute from Bradford, in her flat where police found a boot print on the bedclothes. Two months after that, the 26th of June, he murdered 16-year-old Jane McDonald in Chapel Town. Now, this is what really makes you wonder how they could still focus on him just attacking prostitutes. She was not a prostitute, and in the public perception, 
Her murder showed that all women were potential victims. The police described her as the first innocent victim. Sutcliffe seriously assaulted Maureen Long and Bradford in July. He was interrupted and fled, leaving her for dead. She was suffering from hypothermia when found and was in the hospital for nine weeks. A witness misidentified the make of his car, resulting in more than 300 police officers checking thousands of cars without success. Well, that sucks. On October 1st, 1977, Sutcliffe murdered Jean Jordan, a prostitute from Manchester. In a confession, Sutcliffe said he had realized the new $5 note he had given her was traceable after hosting a family party at his new home. He returned to the wasteland behind Manchester's Southern Cemetery where he had left the body to retrieve the note. Unable to find it, he mutilated Jordan's corpse and moved it. Jesus Christ! On the 9th of October, Jordan's body was discovered by local dairy worker and future actor Bruce Jones, who had an allotment of land adjoining the site where the body was found and was searching for house bricks when he made the discovery. The $5 note hidden in a secret compartment in Jordan's handbag was traced to branches of the Midland Bank in Shipley and Bingley. Police analysis of bank operations allowed them to narrow their field of inquiry to 8,000 employees who could have received it in their wage packet. Over three months, the police interviewed 5,000 men, including Sutcliffe. The police found that the alibi given for Sutcliffe's whereabouts was credible. He had indeed spent much of the evening of the killing at a family party. Weeks of intense investigations pertaining to the origins of the $5 note or five euro note led to nothing leaving police officers frustrated that they collected an important clue but had been unable to trace the actual firm or employee within the firm to which or whom the note had been issued. On December 14th, Sutcliffe attacked Marilyn Moore, another prostitute from Leeds. She survived and provided police with the description of her attacker. Tire tracks found at the scene matched those from an earlier attack. Her photo fit bore a strong resemblance to Sutcliffe, like other survivors, and, and she provided a good description of his car, which had been seen in the red light di districts. Sutcliffe had been interviewed on this issue. 1978, the police discontinued the search for the person who had received the five-euro note in January 1978. Although Sutcliffe was interviewed about it, he was not investigated further. He was contacted and disregarded by the Ripper Squad on several further occasions. That month, Sutcliffe killed again. His victim, Yvonne Pearson, a 21-year-old prostitute from Bradford, he repeatedly bludgeoned her about the head with a ball-peen hammer, then jumped on her chest before stuffing a horse hair into her mouth from a discarded sofa under which he hid her body near Lum Lane. Ten days later, he killed Helen Ritka, an 18-year-old prostitute from Huddersfield. He struck Ritka on the head five times as she exited his vehicle before stripping most of the clothes from her body. Although her bra and polo neck jumper were positioned above her breast and repeatedly stabbing her in the chest, her body was found three days later beneath railway arches and Garrod's timber yard to which he had driven her. Sutcliffe said of Ritka while in police custody in 1981, I had the urge to kill any woman. The urge inside me to kill girls was now practically uncontrollable. 
on May 16th, Sutcliffe killed Vera Millward in an attack in the car park of Manchester Royal Infirmary. Jesus Christ. Oh, hey there, Bruiser Nation. Raise those anchors and get ready to wear the official merch of Bruiser Nation Productions. Visit BruiserNationProductions.KenCustom.com and show the world your love of the Bruiser Nation as you go about your day in style. We have Bruise Cruise Podcast and to the Turnbuckle Team. Hoodies, jackets, shoes, bags, and even pillows. You heard that right. Pillows. That's BruiserNationProductions.KinCustom.com. Once again, BruiserNationProductions.KinCustom.com. And remember, Bruiser Nation, stay good, because I'm always good. On the 4th of April, 1979, Sutcliffe killed Josephine Whitaker, a 19-year-old building society clerk whom he attacked on Savile Park Moor in Halifax as she was walking home. Despite forensic evidence, police efforts were diverted for several months following receipt of the taped message purporting to be from the murderer taunting Assistant Chief Constable George Oldfield of the West Yorkshire Police, who was leading the investigation. The tape contained a man's voice saying, I'm Jack. I see you're having no luck catching me. I have the greatest respect for you, George, but Lord, you're no nearer catching me now than four years ago when I started. Based on the recorded message, police began searching for a man with a wearside accent, which linguists narrowed down to the Castletown area of Sunderland, Tin and Ware. The hoaxer, dubbed Wareside Jack, sent two letters to police and the Daily Mirror in 1978, boasting of his crimes. The letter, signed Jack the Ripper, claimed responsibility for the murder of 26-year-old Joan Harrison in Preston in November 1975. At the time, police mistakenly believed that the Preston murder was not public knowledge. The hoaxer case was reopened in 2005. DNA from the envelopes were entered into the national database in which it matched that of John Samuel Humble, an unemployed alcoholic and longtime resident of the Florida State in Sunderland, a few miles from Castletown, whose DNA had been taken following a drunken disorderly offense in 2001. On the 20th of October, 2005, Humble was charged with attempting to pervert the course of justice for sending the hoax letters and the tape. Humble was remanded in custody and on the 21st of March, 2006, convicted and sentenced to eight years in prison. Humble died on the 30th of July, 2019, at 63. September 1st. Sutcliffe murdered 20-year-old Barbara Leach, a Bradford University student. Her body was dumped at the rear of 13 Ashgrove under a pile of bricks, close to the university and her lodgings. It was his 16th attack. The murder of a woman who was not a prostitute again alarmed the public and prompted an expensive publicity campaign, emphasizing the Wareside connection. Despite the false lead, lead Sutcliffe was interviewed at a on at least two other occasions in 1979. 
despite matching several forensic clues and being on the list of 300 names in connection with the five-euro note, he was not strongly suspected. Sutcliffe was interviewed by police a total of nine times. In April 1980, Sutcliffe was arrested for drunk driving. While awaiting trial, he killed two more women. Sutcliffe murdered 47-year-old Margaret Wells on the night of August 20th, 1980, and 20-year-old Jacqueline Hill, a student at Leeds University, on the night of November 17th, 1980. Hill's body was found on Wasteland near the Arndale Center. Arndale Center. He also attacked three other women who survived, Euphata Bondara in Leeds on the 24th of September, Maureen Lee, an art student, attacked on the grounds of Leeds University on the 25th of October, and 16-year-old Teresa Sykes attacked in Huddersfield on the 9th of November 5th. November 25th, Trevor Birdsall, an associate of Sutcliffe and unwitting getaway driver, as Sutcliffe fled his first documented assault in 1969, reported him to the police as a suspect, but the information vanished into the paperwork already accumulated. Now, so you're doing this for five years. You're loaded with paperwork, with which from what I read and saw that you did not organize, just had in your like war room, just chilling, just chilling. It's all just sitting there, not organized in any way, shape, or form to the point where they had to reinforce the foundation of their war room, which is freaking wild. A dude comes to you and tells you that it's this person. And instead of like getting on the radio, like, hey, man, um, hey, captain, or whoever, because they're not going to say, hey, man, they do have to be somewhat professional. But, hey, captain, we just got this really weird lead. And it, of course, you know, since it was all paper and piled and unorganized, they had no idea of the nine times of him being interviewed, other than the policeman that did the interview if they even remembered him after doing everything and he slipped through their fingers again now it did only take another month but it wasn't like it wasn't police work that got it done it was as it was described in the movie pure dumb luck that that got this monstrous piece of shit off the streets January 2nd 1981 Sutcliffe was stopped by the police with 24 year old prostitute Olivia Reavers in the driveway of Light Trades House in Melbourne Avenue Broomhill Sheffield South Yorkshire that's a mouthful a police check by probationary constable Robert Hydes revealed Sutcliffe's car had false plates and he was arrested and transferred to Dewsbury Police Station in West Yorkshire at Dewsbury, he was questioned in relation to the Yorkshire Ripper case as he matched many of the known physical characteristics. The next day, police returned to the scene of the arrest and discovered a knife, hammer, and rope he had discarded when he briefly swooped away from the police after telling them he was bursting for a pee. Sutcliffe hit a second knife in the toilet cistern at the police station when he was permitted to use the toilet. The police obtained a search warrant for his home in Heaton and brought his wife in for questioning. 
He was finally charged on January 5th, 1981. He pleaded not guilty to 13 charges of murder, but guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. The the United Kingdom's way of saying mentally ill to not fit, couldn't fit trial because he was freaking insane. I mean, of course he was insane. But there's like insanity where you don't understand what you're doing and there's monstrous insanity when you know goddamn well what you were doing. After two days of intensive questioning on January 4th, Sutcliffe suddenly declared he was the Ripper. Over the next day, he calmly described his many attacks. Weeks later, he claimed God had told him to murder the women the women I killed were filth, he told police. Bastard prostitutes who were littering the streets. I was just cleaning up the place a bit. Sutcliffe displayed regret only when talking of his youngest murder victim, Jane McDonald, and when questioned about the killing of Joan Harris. He vehemently denied responsibility. Harrison's murder has been linked to the Ripper killings by the Wareside Jack claim, but in 2011, DNA evidence revealed the crime had actually been committed by convicted sex offender Christopher Smith, who had died in 2008. Well, that's wild. Sutcliffe pleaded guilty to seven charges of attempted murder. The prosecution intended to accept, accept Sutcliffe's plea after four psychiatrists diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia, but the trial judge, Justice Sir Leslie Borham, demanded an unusually detailed explanation of the prosecution reasoning. After a two-hour representation by the Attorney General Sir Michael Havers, a 90-minute lunch break, and another 40 minutes of legal discussion, the judge rejected the dismissed responsibility plea and the expert testimonies of psychiatrists, insisting that the case should be dealt with by a jury. The trial proper was set to commence on the 5th of May, 1981. Trial lasted all but two weeks, and despite the efforts of his counsel, James Chadwick QC, Sutcliffe was found guilty of murder on all counts and was sentenced to 20 concurrent sentences of life in prison. The jury rejected the evidence of four psychiatrists that Sutcliffe had paranoid schizophrenia, possibly influenced by the evidence of a prison officer who heard him say to his wife that if he convinced people he was mad, then he might get 10 years in a loony bin. The trial judge said Sutcliffe was beyond redemption and hoped he would never leave prison. He recommended a minimum term of 30 years to be served before parole could be considered, meaning Sutcliffe would have been unlikely to be freed until at least 2011. 16th of July 2010, the High Court issued Sutcliffe with a whole life tariff, meaning he was never to be released. After his trial, Sutcliffe admitted two other attacks. It was decided that prosecution for these offenses was not in the public interest, and West Yorkshire police made it clear that the victim wished to the victims wished to remain anonymous. So that's basically the story of the Yorkshire Ripper. 
and the women that he murdered. If you want more details on the lives of some of these women, like I said, watch that Netflix Netflix special. But I promised we'd get into the complete idiocracy of the Yorkshire police in this investigation. First and foremost, they started putting curfews on all women they couldn't leave their house without being accompanied by a boyfriend, brother, or father. And after a while, they were, they were protesting the streets by women because they felt they were being punished for the actions of a man. And I'm sure as we discussed. Oh, hey there, Bruiser Nation. Raise those anchors and get ready to wear the official merch of Bruiser Nation Productions. Visit BruiserNationProductions.KinCustom.com and show the world your love of the Bruiser Nation as you go about your day in style. We have Bruise Cruise Podcast and to the turnbuckle tees, hoodies, jackets, shoes, bags, and even pillows. You heard that right. Pillows. That's BruiserNationProductions.KinCustom.com the awful police work this will come up again West Yorkshire police criticized for being inadequately prepared for an investigation on this scale. It was one of the largest investigations by a British police force and predated the use of computers. Information on suspects stored on handwritten index cards and aside from difficulties in storing and accessing the paperwork, like I said, they had to reinforce the damn room where everything was kept. It was difficult for officers to overcome the information overload overload, of such a large manual system. Sutcliffe was interviewed nine times, but all information the police had about the case was stored in paper form, making cross-referencing difficult, combated by television appeals for information, which generated thousand more documents. The 1982 Byford report into the investigation concluded... The ineffectiveness of the major incident room was a serious handicap to the Ripper investigation. While it should have been the effective nerve center of the whole police operation, the backlog of unprocessed information resulted in the failure to connect vital pieces of related information. This serious fault in the central index system allowed Peter Sutcliffe to continually flip through their net. The choice of Oldfield to lead the inquiry was criticized by Byford. The temptation to appoint a senior man on age or service ground should be resisted. What is needed is an officer of the sound professional competence who will inspire confidence and loyalty. He found wanting Oldfield's focus on the hoax confessional tape that seemed to indicate a perpetrator with a wearside background and is ignoring advice from survivors of Sutcliffe's attacks and several eminent specialists including from the Federal Bureau of Investigation in the United States, along with the dialect analysts such as Stanley Ellis and Jack Windsor Lewis, whom he had also consulted throughout the manhunt. That wearside Jack was a hoaxer. The investigation used it as 
a point of elimination rather than a line of inquiry and allowed Sutcliffe to avoid scrutiny as he did not fit the profile of the sender of the tape or letters. The Wareside Jack's hope. Wareside Jack Hoaxer was given unusual credibility when analysis of saliva on the envelopes he sent showed he had the same blood group as that which Sutcliffe had left at crime scenes, a type shared by only 6% of the population. The hoaxer appeared to know details of the murders, which has not had been released to the press, but which in fact had been had acquired from pub, pub gossip and his local newspaper. In response to the police reaction to the murders, the Lee's Revolutionary Feminist Group organized a number of Reclaim the Night marches, like I had discussed just a short minute ago. The group and other feminists had criticized the police for victim-blaming, especially for the suggestion that women should remain indoors at night. Eleven, mar 11 marches in various towns across the United Kingdom took place on the night of November 12, 1977. They made the point that women should be able to walk anywhere without restriction and that they should not be blamed for men's violence. In 1988, the mother of Sutcliffe's last victim, Jacqueline Hill, during an action for damages on behalf of her daughter's estate, argued in the case Hill v. Chief Constable of West Yorkshire in the high court that the police had failed to use reasonable care in apprehending Sutcliffe. The House of Lords held that the chief constable of West Yorkshire did not owe a duty of care to the victim due to the lack of proximity, and that, therefore, failing on the second limb of the Copperow test after Sutcliffe's death in November 2020, West Yorkshire police issued an apology for the language, tome, and terminology used by the force at the time of the criminal investigation. Nine months after one of the victim's sons wrote on behalf of several of the victim's family. The attitude in the West Yorkshire police at the time reflected Sutcliffe's own misogyny and sexist attitudes. According to multiple sources, Jim Hobson, a senior West Yorkshire detective, told a press conference in October 1979 that the perpetrator has made it clear that he hates prostitutes. Many people do. We as a police force will continue to arrest prostitutes, but the Ripper is now killing innocent girls. That indicates your mental state and that you are in urgent need of medical attention. You have made your point. Give yourself up before another innocent woman dies. Joan Smith wrote in Misogynies that even Sutcliffe at his trial did not quite go this far. He did at least claim he was demented at the time. Well, there is the awful and terrible case of... Yorkshire Terrier, Terrier, Jesus Christ, Yorkshire Ripper, terrorizing West Yorkshire and the surrounding areas for a decade, honestly. Yeah, the murders went from 1975 to 80, but he started attacking people back in 1969. So that shit's crazy. Way to go making your assumptions and being a bunch of dumbasses. Yes, police work is very difficult and there are going to be mistakes, but for God's sakes, like this is like ineptitude at its finest. Bruiser Nation, thank you so much for listening to the Bruise Cruise podcast. We're going to end this one with a little bit of levity. We started with some fun we're going to end with some fun because that is some heavy ass shit. 
that we just talked about. Though I don't know, many of you might be aware that a few days ago was National Roast Day. I think Wendy's made up National Roast Day, but I will take it because they knocked this shit out of the park. They were asking people and corporations to request to be roasted. And not only did the corporations ask to be roasted, Wendy's did not disappoint. So first, we'll start with Mike's. This is just some of their best ones. There's a lot, so we'll just go through a few. Mike's Hard Lemonade, still the worst-tasting yellow liquid. Axe asked to be roasted. Remember when Axe was created to just cover up puberty? Oreos requested as well. When adding milk makes you taste better, you're doing it wrong, was Wendy's response. Aviation American Gin wanted to get on the fun. Wendy's response to them, desperation to be culturally relevant is not a gin flavor, but we love the effort. Here's their response to 7-Eleven. If you're looking for a burn, check out your hot dogs. And hey, they they didn't just hit people with food and drinks. Oculus, yeah, the, the, the virtual reality headset people. Claiming that Wendy's salt can't reach them in VR, roast away. I don't need a $300 headset to help me run into my furniture was the response from Wendy's. They got Trisket really, really good too. This one's real good. You did it was Wendy's response to Trisket. You did it. You managed to make a cracker that tastes the same 10 years after you opened the box. Like what a burn. Oscar Meyer, the hot dog you, uh, you have to hide in Mac and cheese for even children to eat. This one might have been my favorite, though. They nailed Velveeta. Like, this was like, yeah, it's still crack up. I've read it like six times. Replying to Velveeta, Wendy states, We're closer to being the first restaurant on Mars than you are being cheese. Aflac, they sent a picture of a roasted duck. Caitlin Harvey, who I believe is a weather person. Most jobs can be replaced by technology. Yours can be replaced by looking out a window. Uber Eats looks like we left it at your neighbor's door. Bud Light got in the on the action, sharing a picture of their terrible sounding Bud Light seltzer pumpkin spice. Saying asking Wendy's to not hold back. Wendy's response to this picture and request, we won't hold back, but maybe you should, because that sounds terrible. Gillette Venus, we can soothe any burn. Hit us with your best. Wendy's response, you're going to love our new pink straw. It's an extra 250 Because everything for women costs more. And one of my other favorite ones, Xbox asked to be roasted. And Wendy's response was, hey, Xbox, let's play some Halo Infinite co-op campaign, which, much to all of our chagrins that pay Halo, does not exist right now and probably won't be around for two months. Isn't that that? So I hope you enjoyed this edition of the Bruce Cruz podcast, Macabro, our true crime edition. Next week, I think we'll do some Skinwalker Ranch. And don't worry, I promise Daniel Bryan versus Adam Page for the AEW World Heavyweight Championship Part 2. That is still coming. That's going to be the next episode that is released. It's been a real busy week as far as trying to 
run my son around town and work and everything else that I have to do around the house. And so it's been a busy week. So we're, we're posting this a little bit later than what we have a light. Be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to the Bruce Cruise Podcast wherever you get your favorite podcast. Like us on YouTube. Subscribe on YouTube. We don't get monetized for that, but what are you going to do? Like and subscribe for when we release new videos. On the Bruce Cruise Podcast, you'll hear Macabro, the Bruce Cruise Podcast, the only podcast that brings you pro wrestling for your ears, as well as to the turnbuckle. And we'll be bringing more stuff to it, I am quite possibly sure. Check out in the description. Go to BruiserNation slash productions.shopify.com, our brand new merch store with a few extra merch partners. And the cool part is we are adding new merch each and every week. We, we just joined up last Sunday. And we have quite a few new products available. Everything there, I'm going to add, be adding some more tomorrow, Sunday, January 16th. So keep an eye out for that. Go to our Patreon page where right now we're, we have the tiers. We got stickers. We got bags, shirts, jackets. We, we got stuff on there. We're still working on the content. I'm trying to narrow down what content I want to start with as far as that goes. Maybe uncut episodes, um, some Q&As maybe, old archived episodes. We'll see. We're starting to get pretty full on the amount of episodes that I can't even keep track because everything just blurs together when you have three things going on. And all of that will also be, if you would like to check out bruisernationproductions.com, whether you need audio, video production, pictures taken, efficient services for a wedding or baptism, I can do that too. Just visit bruisernationproductions.com and experience the Bruiser Nation difference all of those links will be, be in the description for this episode. And as always, Bruiser Nation, stay good because I'm always good. You can talk about the new era, but it doesn't matter to me because I know what you really want. And I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you what you crave right now. Tonight, I give you the gift of Jericho. Drink it in, man.